Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking here as we get from July into August. It is summer. It's been hot. It's been very hot. And the debates over policy in New York City and New York State have been hot as well. There's elections happening. It's primary season number two. After the June primaries, we're heading towards the August primaries. And if you've been listening to the show, you've heard me speaking with a number of candidates in some of the high profile congressional races that are happening in New York City. But on the policy side, that includes some of the ways that we deal with heat and that we try to stop the planet from warming further, ways we adapt to the changing climate, and ways we use our public spaces. There's been a great deal of discussion and debate forever, basically, over the use of public space in New York City. And much of that discussion has reached a fever pitch in recent years around things like pedestrianization, park expansion, bike lanes, open streets programs, and more, including how the city responded to the COVID pandemic and some of the rethinking of the use of public space as people needed to get outside more and also have space from one another. There have been pitched battles about things like the city's streets master plan, about car-free streets and pedestrian plazas, about expanding greenways, about a congestion pricing program, city bike, and much, much more. Of course, listeners to this program, readers of us at Gotham Gazette know many things about these discussions. But today, we're really talking here about our use of public space in New York City. My guest on this episode of the show is Jackson Chabot, Director of Public Space Advocacy at Open Plans, a nonprofit organization that is out to transform the streets of New York City to be truly livable for the residents of this city. Open Plans, according to their mission statement, is using tactical urbanism. We're going to ask Jackson what that means exactly. Grassroots advocacy, policy, and targeted journalism to promote structural reforms within city government that support livable streets, neighborhoods, and the city at large. Jackson Chabot joined Open Plans in June of 2020 and is the director of public space advocacy. As I said, since joining the organization, Jackson has been leading advocacy efforts for Open Plans proposal to create an office of public space management. And we're going to talk about that here on the show. That's our focus. Jackson Chabot is a graduate of Pratt Institute with a master's in urban placemaking and management and worked at Project for Public Spaces. He's also involved with the New York Metro chapter of the American Planning Association. My conversation with Jackson Chabot of Open Plans in just one minute. First, if you missed any of our recent episodes of the show, as I said, I've been speaking a lot with candidates for Congress. There are two high-profile primaries. There's more than two contested primaries, of course, but two very high-profile congressional primaries happening leading up to the August 23rd primary date. There's the new New York 10, which has no incumbent running, crowded field that former Mayor de Blasio recently dropped out of. I've been speaking with the top candidates there. Find those discussions at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. Of the top candidates in that field, the one I haven't spoken with yet is Representative Mondaire Jones, who represents a Hudson Valley district, but recently moved to Brooklyn to run in this race. We're hoping to have him on soon. But I've spoken with Carlina Rivera, Dan Goldman, Joanne Simon, Yulene New, 
Elizabeth Holtzman. Uh, so find those interviews and get ready to vote, especially, of course, if you are living in the new New York 10, which includes lots of lower Manhattan and a big stretch of Brooklyn. And then the other one is New York 12, where we have representatives Jerry Nadler and Carol Maloney facing off, as well as Suresh Patel, who ran against Representative Maloney the last two cycles. That is a basically a three-way race. There's other candidates in the running as well. I recently spoke to Patel here on the show, and I have invitations out to representatives Nadler and Maloney. That's just a sample. I've had other great guests recently, including State Senate Deputy Leader Michael Janaris, New York City Comptroller Brad Lander, uh, and others. So find those wherever you get your podcast or the Gotham Gazette site. And if you missed any of our reporting at Gotham Gazette, of course, find it at GothamGazette.com. We've been covering uh, city and state politics as usual, and there is a lot going on at both levels of government uh, and, of course, with the elections, not to leave out the gubernatorial race that is now well into the general election between Republican nominee Lee Zeldin and Democratic nominee Kathy Hochul, of course. And we've got a lot of good stuff coming on that. Mayor Eric Adams and more. All right. Today's discussion, as I said, very happy to be joined by Jackson Chabot uh, of Open Plans. He's the director of public space advocacy for the nonprofit, and they are looking to do nothing less than transform the streets of New York City to be truly livable for the residents of the city. Jackson, thanks for joining me. Welcome. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. This is this is great conversation. And I'm a New York 10 resident, so I appreciate the intro ah. as well. Very good. Very good. All right. So lots to listen to there, uh, yes. or at least pick pick one or two of your, your favorite candidates to check out. Um, but th- those have been some good discussions with uh, with these Democrats vying in this very competitive primary there in New York. All right. Well, we'll we'll talk politics another time of electoral sorts. But you're the director of public space advocacy at Open Plans. You're looking to transform the way uh, New York City uh, uses public space, make it truly livable. What does truly livable mean? I mean, let's start really big here. Um, wh- what are some of the pieces of what it means to have a livable city, uh, especially here in, in a place like New York? Yeah, that's a great question. I think even before getting into what a livable city is, thinking about like what is public space. And so for us, we think about public space as streets and sidewalks. Um, There's a lot of great advocacy organizations, both on the ground for parks as well as citywide. And we're really focused on that space in between buildings. So uh, public space in the streets and sidewalks context. And we think this is really consequential because right now New York City is Uh, 27% of New York City is streets. And right now, 75% of that is allocated towards the movement or storage of vehicles. And so what we've got is this outsized percentage of movement and storage of vehicles when most New Yorkers do not own or have access to a vehicle. Now, this looks a little bit different in different parts of the city, but recognizing that the majority of people do not have access to a vehicle. So when we think about uh, livability, I think what the first thing comes to is safety. And we've seen public health epidemic level numbers of traffic violence over the past couple of years and continues on record this year. Um, And so I think the first point for livability has to be safety. And we have to prioritize safety as the previous administration did with the Vision Zero program um, and how I think we need to work towards uh, further and bigger goals from that perspective. I think the second point that I had to highlight is building community. And so we see things like block parties in different parts of the city where people come together on an annual or semi-annual basis and begin to build community or continue to build community. I think this has been further both exacerbated as well as highlighted from the importance 
during the pandemic, which is, as you mentioned in the intro, one of the aspects of open streets. Um, and so, so I did say safety and community are two of the largest parts for what we think about with uh, livable streets um, and therefore livable neighborhoods and therefore a livable city. Mm-hmm. So the first thing, right, that, that some of your um, outline there is, is going to get at is this, quote unquote, uh, war on cars, uh, breaking the car culture, things of this nature. Before the pandemic, this discussion was really had really, really heated up because the city council speaker at the time, Corey mm-hmm. Johnson, had really become uh I mean, a real champion of that movement and was really moving things ahead to try to reimagine um, lots of things related to public space beyond uh, the ways that you were saying that you really um, approach it. Uh, And as I mentioned, the streets master plan that that was his uh, one of his signature pieces of legislation and so forth. And so there is there is really this developing and it's continued. But COVID has obviously shifted so much and increase in crime has shifted a lot of the discussion and, and, and various things. But there's really this discussion. And you just got at a bit about car ownership, how much of public space is dedicated to cars. Um, so immediately, there's some people who may be listening who are quickly then saying, oh, here's one of these guys who just wants to, you know, get rid of all cars and is anti-car and doesn't understand that people need to uh, use their cars to get around the city. And it, it's, you know, not so simple as just, you know, turn over all our, our public space to uh, people walking and on bikes and so forth. What What's your general sort of response to that type of um, disagreement that people have when they start to hear about how you and others approach, you know, the amount of public space that's dedicated towards cars. And as you say, you know, a majority of people don't necessarily own cars in New York City. It, it's, you know, somewhere in that close to 50-50 breakdown, but go ahead. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Very timely. There's a great uh, newsletter called Street Beat put out by John Sirico, who is a journalist uh, among extraordinary among any, many things. And in his monthly edition today, he talks exactly on this issue and highlighting that we can move from a city that is reliant on vehicles for transportation to one that is more car optional. And I think what we see with open streets is providing people the space, whether it's um, almost 24-7 or is daily, like we see with Barry Street in North Brooklyn, we see with 34th Avenue in Jackson Heights, or we see more on a weekend temporal basis with something like 31st Avenue in Astoria or Vanderbilt in Brooklyn as well. Um, And thinking about what that looks like from a time perspective and really creating opportunities for what we get when we say, hey, look, we recognize that some people do need a vehicle. We also recognize that we need more public space in different parts of the city and say, what uh, really thinking about, I think, opportunistically, what do we get? And I think we get um, people-centered spaces that are filled with joy, filled, as John highlighted in his uh, episode today, filled with a farmer's market, filled with a free queer book club, filled with, as we've seen across the city, the Uh, circus being put in different places. We get all of these wonderful things that are literally brought to people's doorsteps. I think that's the real potential of public space systemically distributed across the city, uh, whether it's for a couple of hours on a Saturday or it's daily. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit more about how space is allocated and um, this issue of, of not just the movement of cars, but but the storage of cars. Um, you know, this is this is one of the interesting things, of course, about New York City is that there are many, many people 
who own cars and don't really use them very often. Um, there are plenty of people who drive, obviously, and, and there's real issues with, you know, street congestion and traffic. Um, but there's a lot of car storage that's happening. What's your you and, and open plans, you know, what's your thinking about um, approaching that issue? And, you know, there's talk about residential parking permit, uh, there's charge, you know, charging for parking, different proposals out there. What does open plans want to see about, you know, how space is allocated for uh, the storage of, of vehicles? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Uh, on a macro level, really enthusiastic about congestion pricing. I think that's one of the starting points, particularly true in Manhattan, obviously in the potential congestion zone, pricing zone. I think from the street perspective and the allocation of space, thinking about, uh, like I said, what we get from if we take one vehicle, which is maybe 12 feet long, could we get a parklet that has a community garden in there? Like the opportunistic thinking there. Um, we're also really enthusiastic about dynamic curb pricing and thinking about loading zones and expansion of the neighborhood loading zone program that the Department of Transportation has. And some of these ways that we can think more holistically about curbside management, which my colleague Sarah has been really involved in thinking through um, and really following the lead of a lot of other cities across the United States and globally of what our streets look like if we allocate space in different ways rather than, as you pointed out, the sort of uniform parking and storage of vehicle when people might only move their vehicles for alternate side parking um, and thinking about what that looks like with dynamic pricing, with loading zones, with uh, many other possibilities. City bike, for example, over the mm -hmm. past 10 years has been a really interesting visual transformation of the curbside space in all ways. Certainly some docks are on the sidewalk, but many in the roadbed. Uh, now we've seen outdoor dining and the open restaurants program is another iteration of what curbside space looks like and open streets, maybe more from the streetscape perspective rather than a curb perspective has changed that dynamic too. So we've seen some really interesting iterations over the past 10 years. And I think we continue to be interested in all of those and move in that direction, um, you know, in a very tangible, strategic way. And thinking about, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, that most New Yorkers do not own vehicles, and particularly true, perhaps most prevalently in Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn, but across the city, recognizing that's the case. Is one um, piece of the discussion uh, widening sidewalks? Is that something that there's any? Um, any sort of movement behind, you know, I, I hear this come up at times when you see, um, again, sort of the the sidewalk versus, um, you know, vehicle lane mm -hmm. allocation of space, uh, especially when we used to have more commuters, at least coming into the city, you'd see these crazy scenes, especially around rush hour of just so many people trying to walk to some of the big transit hubs that you have people spilling into the streets. Um, Absolutely. But, but beyond that, even, um, you know, it, it's so interesting. You, you walk down some of the more quiet residential neighborhoods and, and often you don't necessarily see cars even coming down the streets, but when people are trying to pass each other, they, they don't even sometimes have room to pass each other on the sidewalk. Um, wh where does, where does that type of initiative? I mean, that can be obviously very expensive in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, is that part of the, the thinking at all? Yeah, that's less where we put some, I would say, direct type of campaign advocacy towards. But as you're talking about that, the first thing that comes to mind is like 8th Avenue and thinking about Penn Station. And, yeah, exactly. And, and so there is, I think, movement from the city's end to expand the sidewalks in those types of zones. One of the things that we think about organizationally is 
the first set of people often to be um, have space taken away from them is pedestrians. So things are put on the curbside space rather than in the parking, the curb lane, or what is currently the parking space, the storage of vehicle space. Um, and so I think this is true, like I said, city bike on the sidewalk versus in the curbside space, open restaurants on the sidewalk or in the curbside space. Um, and I think it's often a choice and we want, and we want to push the city to continue to expand pedestrian space so that we have full accessibility, that we have space for street vendors, for example, um, really thinking about what it looks like to put things in the curbside space rather than in pedestrian space. In addition, perhaps in certain areas, as you point out, perhaps around Midtown, Penn Station, Times Times Square, um, among others, Grand Central, where there needs to be literally more concrete on the ground to provide space for pedestrians. Mm-hmm. Um, you've gotten at some of this already, but you, uh, Open Plans has, has put out uh, a report, a uh, advice for the Adams administration was coming in and still applicable, of course, to reimagine the curb. Mm-hmm. Uh, say a little bit more about what that um, looks like and and what, um, you know, what what your vision is for reimagining the, the curb, so to speak. Yeah, I think you know, as I point out a few things earlier, there's a few great tangible examples already happening. So City Bike, um, the potential, say, 50 stations, 50 bikes that are used there versus what might be otherwise three or four stored vehicles and what that looks like from a social and shared use perspective. I think that's one of the great examples. Seen it as well during the pandemic with the open restaurants program. Um, and then, like I mentioned earlier, with the dynamic curb pricing, really reevaluating what it means to either store things or have space temporarily in sort of in flux at the curb, whether that's Fresh Direct or UPS offloading packages um, in space where they're priced adequately for it. Um, And thinking about what that sort of ecosystem looks like because with each action causes a reaction. And uh, I think nothing can be done in a silo for that perspective. But right now, the overall point is the curb is chaotic. Um, Whether it's double parked vehicles, whether it's deliveries, uh, whether it's open restaurants sort of in the bike lane or people biking through where a waiter might be walking to deliver food. Um, So many different things going on that creates a system that is working for no one. And one that we believe needs to be holistically and systemically evaluated Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the city. Don't forget, don't forget about all the trash on the sidewalks often and uh, spilling into the streets and Precisely. all of that. One of my pet peeves there that there's some movement on. Um, there is some movement. The City Bin program is a, is a great start. And we're really enthusiastic about that as well. We'd love to see that be placed in the curbside lane as well, rather than on the sidewalk. So again, the space is not taken from pedestrians. It's placed in the curbside lane. Re, rethinking how we're using the curb in, in that perspective is, is another great example. And really, like I said, enthusiastic about what that could look like and how it's transformative. You, you, you stole my, my prompt there. I was going to say, and that's, uh, that's another, another sort of decision point, right. Where, yes. where government is going to be making these decisions and that might be a citywide policy. It might be left up to certain, you know, local groups, but um, those are the, those are the types of decision points where you say, okay, there's a lot of momentum about, containerizing the trash, but where are those containers going to go? And then there's battles over, are they taking, uh, replacing, you know, a couple of parking spots on each block or, you know, or are they going onto the sidewalk? You know, how, how is that, how are those decisions being made? You also have, um, this data point 
in that um, report that there's 3 million free on-street parking spots in New York City, which is which is quite a number. Um, uh, yeah, uh, you mentioned something about that earlier that I forgot that, you know, reprompted my thinking here is this is, a, again, a decision point. This is a uh, concrete policy choice. Free parking storage overnight was not always a policy in New York City. This wasn't put in place until, I believe, the 60s. So, this fairly recent point in time where the city made a decision to allow the free storage of vehicles overnight. And mm-hmm. therefore, for me, it prompts the thing of why is it like that? Why does it have to be like that? And how else could we do things? Whether that's, like you said, several spots or it's the systemic uh, change. So one of the things, again, that we get at here, though, is, you know, you have people who are, um who have mobility impairments, you have people who are older, you have people with young kids. I mean, getting around the city with, with little children can be extremely difficult. And so there, there's sort of this, I think, reflexive from some people who might hear us talking about, oh, there's all these parking spots and there's all this free storage of cars and there's people going, yeah, I need, I need my car to get my, you know, six month old to a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. I need to go, you know, to, you know, food shopping with that, with that car, it's not always easy to go to, you know, a bodega and get everything. And, the, and I don't have a good supermarket within, you know, several blocks. Um, say more about sort of the replacement vision, because, you know, so often in these conversations, and it's not just about space, it's about virtually everything, you know, uh, education programs, criminal justice reform, you know, people often right. talk about the thing you want to either take away or, or undo or whatever it is, but what's the replacement, you know, often mm-hmm. gets left out. So say a little bit more, you know, for example, about someone who needs to get around with someone who's older and just, you know, is not able to walk long distances or, or someone who has a child who, you know, is in a, in a stroller. Um, what's the sort of, if more space is rededicated, what, what's more of what that really looks like to get people around this city to doctor's appointments, to shopping, obviously to work, Mm -hmm. um, say a little bit more about the replacement vision. Yeah, I think that's a a great point. And I would say loading zones, for example, or some vision towards, uh, Temporary parking space is is fundamental to the first scenario that you suggested, um, especially around potentially with hospitals and things um, in a variety of types of neighborhoods. There's uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Norks, the naturally occurring um, aging communities. I'm not sure the exact retirement. Yeah, exactly. Retirement communities. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And thinking about like what does it look like from a demographic perspective and where might people need to go? That might include supermarkets, as you highlight that example as well. Um, and so I think that's part of it. With things like accessoride, I think people should want uh, more space for loading zones if they have accessoride so that there's easy access to the curb rather than having to wedge through uh, long, more or less, you know, like weekly, but in that sense, long-term stored vehicles to get to an accessoride. So they can literally get closest to to where the person needs to be picked up. I would also highlight a great example that uh, Juan Restrepo from Transportation Alternatives posted on Twitter. um, And it's for the bikeways in Harlem. And it's a woman in a wheelchair who supports bikeways and bike lanes because they're much more accessible for her in her wheelchair, her mobility assistive device to get around on rather than a sidewalk that might be up and down with curb cuts that don't necessarily meet her needs. And so I think mm-hmm. when we think about accessibility holistically, think about someone in the mobility space, providing all of these different things. So it includes the loading zones, it includes the bike lanes, it includes the accessory, it includes 
all of these components. I would also say that, you know, specifically perhaps to your scenario about groceries or that perspective or getting a child to school, there's a lot of parents already that do this with, for example, cargo bikes, and yet they're not given the space to get there safely nor to store their quote unquote vehicles, if you would. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're giving more rights or allocation of space to people or parents that might have SUVs or vehicles in general, rather than, or in addition to providing space for others. So I think it's the reallocation of space is really a right sizing to what we're seeing from mobility trends. I think that would be a further inducing point for a lot of people to choose if they know that it's safe to choose to be able to do things in different ways with uh, different modes of transportation, whether it's taking the bus because they know it's faster or it's riding a bike or it's walking. Aha, you stole, you stole it. I was, I was going to say, I don't know. I don't know that you've mentioned buses yet. And I was wondering where that fits in. I see it in, you know, part of the materials that you put out, but there seems to me to, to sometimes be a tension here between saying um, we want to get more people out of individual vehicles, cars, uh, you know, trucks, et cetera, and into buses. And we want the buses to be moving faster mm-hmm. and the sort of safe streets, uh, open streets, you know, returning more of the curb and street space to uh, pedestrians and bikers. There, there either needs to be a really, really major redesign of mm-hmm. a lot of this space, or you're going to bump into some tension where you have these massive buses flying along, which would be a very good thing. I mean, bus speed is something, another really, you know, top, top pet, pet peeve of mine. And we've done a lot of reporting on this, but mm-hmm. um, you, we want the, but we want buses full and really able to move, but then you get into some tension there when you have buses flying along. I mean, I, I see this near where I live where it's, it's great. There's a, there's new bus lanes near where I live. But right next to the curb, these buses are traveling at, at improved speeds, which is good. But it's it doesn't really feel like the safest curb and sidewalk experience sometimes. Yeah. How do, you, how do you how do you sort of think about that management? I mean, I know it's mm-hmm. better in it is actually my next question is about where are they doing it well. But I know it's better in in many European cities. I'm not mm-hmm. sure about cities in in the United States where it might be uh, done better. I, I think there's some stuff happening more in you know the West and, and Midwest where they've you know <laughs> uh, had had more space to work with at times. But um, uh, how do you how do you think about that tension and getting the buses really moving, but also making sure that as you're creating more space for pedestrians and bikes and 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 people to move around, that you know that's all being done in a balanced and safe way. For sure. Yeah, I think it's a healthy tension. I think it's something that's super complimentary. First thing it makes me think of is the 14th Street busway and the way that that has transformed that corridor. First and foremost, where it is faster for bus riders getting along the corridor. And then I also think it's generally because it has removed private vehicles, has has made it a safer place to walk and bike. And so I think it, it really is a chain of events that has led in that corridor to be a positive impact. Um, I think where there's a lot of room for improvement is in downtown Brooklyn, where we don't see a lot of enforcement for the bus lane, but we also see the busway and then there's a bike lane uh, next to it. So I think there's a good example of where with some refinements, there could be space for both. Um, Certainly there's no outdoor dining in that stretch. So that's a bit of a different scenario. And then I think looking forward, one of the other examples I'd highlight 
uh, shout out council member Rita Joseph, who's been a big champion for the bus lanes going in her district uh, for the B41 and thinking about like, what does that look like with robust community involvement and community engagement? I think it does have to include that. I see that as well with the Queensboro uh, bus redesign project, thinking about what does it look like to include different perspectives to understand what people, what different people need different uh, services, whether that is people walking, biking, taking the bus. And sometimes, frankly, those people are the same people. I think uh, putting safety, as you ask about, at the pinnacle of it, making sure people are moving on the bus quickly, but also that the general streetscape is safe. Mm-hmm. Rita Joseph is indeed my my council member. Uh, there you go. <laughs> and uh, and but actually the the bus uh, lanes I'm referring to are on on Church Avenue in mm-hmm. Brooklyn, and uh, and again we we use the buses on them, uh, which which have seen I think improved speeds at least anecdotally. I haven't looked if there's numbers out there yet. I'm not sure on that one. Um, but but also you know it does it does create a little bit of a tricky streetscape. Um, and again, you know, I, I don't say these things at all to undercut the idea of faster buses uh, at, at all. Um, so where are they doing it well? I mean, we'll come back to New York City policy in just one moment. But do you have models? Um, you know, do you point to certain uh, European cities, for example, that uh, are doing it well? I know, um, you know, some people like to talk about models in, in Barcelona and, and other places. Anywhere that you point to, say, you know, they've really been at least getting it close to right from our vantage point. Yeah. So potentially we focus organizationally less on buses. But as you point out and ask questions with all of these components, it's it's an ecosystem. And we do need to think about all of these pieces. So personally, I've been to Mexico City and they've got great bus rapid transit there, which might be a comparison to the select bus service here. But slightly different because they've got dedicated lanes that run down the middle of large avenues. Mm -hmm. And and that really creates the spatial difference where the buses do not get caught in what otherwise is traffic. And so I think that would be the the primary point of example internationally that I think is tremendous and I would love to see in New York City. I think the other one in the United States is in Indianapolis, Uh, not road on their their bus there, uh, but similarly with bus rapid transit there and, and ways that we can think about um, something that's more cost effective than more subway stations or ex- extending the subway lines. And we can do on our street surface, which the city also has control of. What about this reimagining of street space, uh, you know, put, putting the buses aside or, or, or noting the buses as a key component of this? Mm-hmm. What about sort of the, the work that you're directly thinking about? Are there, is there, are there places that, that do it best um, mm. that are more pedestrianized, that are, you know, um, really figuring out a way to balance uh, bus, bike, walking, uh, use of public space for plazas and outdoor right. dining and things like that. Is there somewhere you point to as a, as a model? Yeah, I, I love how you're mentioning all of the things. It gets me excited. <laughs> you, have uh, to, you have to have the, the bigger vision, right? If you, if you, you know, precisely. Just, do, just do one, it, it can cause some problems. <laughs> Yes, I think there's a lot of great things going on in New York City and a lot of great progress to build upon. I think internationally, I love looking, I have yet to visit Barcelona recently, but like you mentioned with them earlier, I think there's Superblocks framework and working backwards from this large vision and creating that backwards plan is really transformational. I think we have that type of opportunity here, given that much of Manhattan is the grid, parts of the other boroughs are on a grid. And I think there's that uh, ability to think systemically about what that would look like. I think there's also 
great progress in Montreal. I spoke with the mayor of Montreal uh, a while back, and she's done a phenomenal job investing resources. This, so this is a top-down policy and resources choice that she has made to create more park space, create more open streets, to create more pedestrian centered streets, um, and has been wildly successful there. Uh, in Europe as well, Paris and Mayor Anne Hidalgo have uh, induced a bike boom by creating more temporary bike lanes that are being created and hardened. Uh, one of the things we're really excited about in Paris is school streets, and they've pretty much over the past two years created this program to create space around schools that I think would be a great point of comparison and implementation in New York City because um, Jesse Coburn from Streets Blog did a couple of stories in the spring reporting about how schools around streets, streets around schools are incredibly unsafe, mm. particularly during pickup and drop off hours. So those are several examples. Bogota would be another great example. Um, you know, children in Japan can walk um, walk around at like age six. And it's, these are all really policy choices of how we design, build and manage our cities. Mm-hmm. All right. Given, given listeners some, some places to, to Google and look around to see what, what, what they're doing there. Um, let's, let's come back to your proposal for, um, you know, how to sort of actually structure the governance of, of managing public space in just one second. I wanted to come back to this 3 million uh, free parking spot um, number. Do you, does open plans have a number that you think that should be reduced to, you know, should 3 million uh, free parking spaces where you have to just move your car for, uh, you know, street sweeping. um, Should that be reduced down in your vision over the next, you know, five years to 1 million? Do you have something like that? Um, Or is it more about turning a certain number of those, away from parking, many more of them into paid parking. How, how do you do, do you think about that in terms of certain metrics or is that not, have you not gotten that specific on those numbers? I think it's a bit of both. And I think that's also a next step for us. We'd love to work with this administration and the Department of Transportation on thinking about both what the space looks like on different curb typologies in different parts of the city that have different needs and not having a one size fits all type of plan. Um, as well as systemically reducing the parking spaces um, and thinking about we have a campaign to eliminate parking minimums in the city as well and think about what that looks like in in buildings as well and new construction as well. So it's really under, I would say, the broader umbrella of reducing driving and, and as you say, about potentially the banned cars moniker. It's more about creating a city that is car optional mm-hmm. and how can we create a city where people have different mobility choices, whether that is the bus, whether that is walking, whether that is biking. Um, and maybe at times that is driving or taking a TLC vehicle. I, I guess, you know, saying um, car optional driving optional is, um, you know, is, is a nice way to put it. Um, at the same time, there's, there's pieces of the policy agenda that are sort of purposely um, you know, being either enacted like congestion pricing Mm -hmm. or sought to make it sort of more uncomfortable (laughs) to own a car and drive a car around the city, uh, especially in the case of congestion pricing into a certain area of the city. At the same time, the MTA capital plan is reliant on not that many people giving up that drive into Manhattan (laughs) in order to bring in the revenue that's required, which I always found... um, 
a little bit of a strange setup there. Not asking you to particularly comment on that policy choice, but there are pieces of this that are about sort of the the culture and sort of trying to really um, make it less pleasant to be sitting in a car and a more attractive possibility to be getting around by other means. Is that a is that a fair way to put it? I think it's a pretty fair way to put it. I would also flip that on its head and ask mm-hmm. you or the listeners, have you ever tried biking down a street where there with where it's choked with vehicles, whether that's Prince Street in Soho where there is a bike lane, or that's Knickerbocker, where I was talking with a friend last night and he said it's it's crazy scary to bike down at all times of the day, or as you mentioned earlier, Church Avenue. And there's many examples in many parts of the city where this is true because we've allocated so much space towards driving and vehicles, whether that's deliveries where we absolutely need, whether that's bus routes, et cetera. But thinking about how can we give more space to different uses and make it safe for all users, including drivers, um, because we've seen, again, uh, public health level epidemic numbers of traffic violence this year, which includes drivers and, and their passengers. You're listening to Max Politics here with Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm talking with Jackson Chabot of Open Plans, and he is the director of public space advocacy there. Uh, and Open Plans is really pushing for the creation of an office of public space management in New York City. So a lot of this discussion has sort of been leading up to <laughs> this idea of a of an office of public space management. You've been advocating for this. You've testified at the city council around this. You co-authored an op-ed at Gotham Gazette around this that helped lead towards this discussion here today. Um, you know, as, as I've been uh, thinking more about these things and wanting to, to talk about them more, and, and we had a, a, a great conversation a couple of months back here on the show uh, around how to create a more bike-friendly city, uh, and, and folks should uh, tune in uh, and find that with John Orkut of Bike New York, um, and, and this, you know, another sort of piece of that discussion. Um, so, Jackson, uh, the need for an office of public space management in New York City, uh, we've discussed a lot of pieces around this, but what's the specific sort of case for creating this office in New York City government? Absolutely. So this report was developed pre-pandemic and a lot of research was done in thinking about what does what is the current state of affairs for New York City's public space? And, and also, as you asked earlier about different international or national sort of case studies and places to point to, what does it look like in other places? And one of the things we realized through our research in New York City is that some of the best public spaces are managed, operated, maintained, cared for, however you want to frame it, by business improvement districts. And thinking about this, what this looks like spatially as well as financially, business improvement districts cover about 2% of the city, and they're largely concentrated in midtown Manhattan and below, as well as bits of downtown Brooklyn. We also see from a financial perspective that in addition to this being spatially inequitable from that care management maintenance perspective, that the largest bid by budget has almost 24 million as their operating budget. And the smallest one is under 100,000, according to the Small Business Services annual bid report. And so we're, we're facing both a capacity question as well as a resources question for some of the best managed public spaces. And we believe that we need an office of public space management so that across the city, every citizen, every resident, and you know, as well, every visitor has access to great public space because 
fundamentally someone needs to pick up the trash around a public plaza or an open street. For open streets, someone needs to set out the barriers. For open streets as well, as well as for plazas, again, great job by business improvement districts, coordinating programming, getting permits, taking on, in a lot of places, liability insurance. So we believe that fundamentally, the city should be picking up a lot more of this responsibility. And again, it's a policy choice, a decision point, as you referenced earlier, and I'm gonna keep using that phrase because I really, I really appreciate that. It really is a decision point the city can and should, in our opinion, pick up um, because we believe public space, just as we've outlined as a city from our vision, everyone should be able to walk to a park. I believe that everyone should have a public space in that same fashion, walking to in front of or near their apartment, their home. Uh, in sort of closing here, it's been especially highlighted by something like 34th Avenue, where we've seen residents of Jackson Heights that have the lowest percentage of public space per capita in the entire city instantly have so much more public space. And thinking about what that looks like from a transformation perspective, there's great programming there, there's a food pantry there, there's ESL classes there, there's activities for children there. And on a daily basis, it has created a safe, joyful, livable place to walk around. And and so this idea of, of an office of public space management, your um you know, say more about sort of the structure of city government and how this would then coordinate certain uh, departments and agencies that do certain things. It would take responsibility away. How do you sort of envision this and what's the status of legislation around this? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we consistently hear from open streets, coalitions, volunteers, operators, is that there needs to be a high level person in government that's coordinating all of these things, because there's a great graphic by the Municipal Arts Society looking at how many agencies touch or could touch the public space, everything from the Department of Transportation to DEP to DSNY, Department of Buildings, among others. And we really need someone at the deputy mayor level and then therefore an office to do some of the on the ground maintenance and management to think through as well as to coordinate, plan and manage the public space. So I would say it's working in collaboration with some of those agencies, as I referenced, and thinking about what does it look like as we create different priority levels, which I think is part of that decision point process. And, you know, is the movement of storage of vehicles our highest priority as a city? Or are we saying we really want to create a space in the city as we made a, a decision point under the Bloomberg administration with Genesis Khan for Times Square? And let's create more space for people. I think we're also seeing that again with open streets, whether like I referenced earlier, they're on a daily basis or a weekend basis. And so different types of decision points in the decision tree. The, the legislation is an interesting question as they were having a lot of great conversations with council members and therefore decision makers on this. I'm really excited and grateful for council member Brooks Powers for hosting the recent hearing on this topic, this oversight topic of managing public space. Um, and so I think the legislation process is still in development. There's nothing firm yet, but very much an ongoing conversation about what that could look like and making sure that we're solving problems. Because I think at the end of the day, we believe managing public space and office of managing manage, public space management has to solve that problem of providing great public space for all New Yorkers, whether they live in East New York or the South Bronx, or they live in the Lower East Side or the North Shore of Staten Island, really make sure that this is systemic and is equitable. Mm-hmm. And it is a key piece of, of the sort of 
initial vision here to do more of those pedestrian, you know, pedestrianized plazas. Um, you know, we, we saw some movement on that, as you mentioned, under the Bloomberg administration, a little bit under the Blasio administration. Um, uh, it seems to be something that the new uh, New York City DOT Commissioner, Donis Rodriguez, favors. Um, pedestrianized, you know, plazas, you, I think, referenced the super block, you mm-hmm. know, concept, um, the open streets, you know, program. Are these the types of things that should just be sort of, at least in the interim, kind of supercharged? Um, and, and, you know, how do you make sure that the sort of community buy-in is there? Um, this is obviously an age-old question in New York City. Uh, you know, you get, you get community boards sometimes pushing back on things and you get, you know, some of these very local battles happening. Um, but but as we're wrapping up here, uh, is that sort of, um, you know, a, a, a pragmatic step that should be undertaken by the Adams administration as you're having some of these, you know, discussions around what the future of governance and curb, you know, usage is and street usage is to sort of supercharge some of that thinking? Uh, and And how do you, ensure um you know that you're putting putting these things in places where where people actually want them for sure i think the supercharging is a great framing and there's been like i said a lot of great things the department of transportation is doing a lot of great collaborations for example with the organization street lab providing programming to a variety of open streets so that there is activities for people to do when they go to these newly created public spaces. I think that's programming is a key part of why we've seen a lot of open streets be really successful. Um, And then I think on that way, it is creating that big vision and therefore thinking about a super block, thinking about a network of open streets, thinking about ways that we can do this quickly. And as you referenced at the very, very beginning of the conversation, the tactical urbanism approach. And I think that's one way that I would highlight in the community engagement aspect of this conversation where we really need to test things out. We need to test them and say, hey, look, what is your feedback? If you don't like it, okay, let's let's you know not do this. But like at the very least, let's test it and let's think about what this looks like. Let's get conversations going and spark, whether that's in community board meetings or is literally on the street space. I think it's all the better that it's on the street space where people can feel this because this is a very sensory experience. I think we need to create the environment for people to be out and build community and feel a part of their neighborhood. And so I think we have to use tactical urbanism. We have to use this approach where, where we're trying out projects and we're scaling them up from there. If people like it, we're saying, okay, let's expand the hours. Let's develop this network and let's, let's build this out systemically. Um, I think that's the, the feedback loop that potentially is much quicker than the current model and we can evaluate how people like it, whether or not they like it, and ask them some of these individual questions and build, and I think therefore build relationships. Lastly, um, how is the Adams administration doing overall in the first seven months as we're wrapping up July here? We're, we're speaking on uh, Friday, July 29th. Folks will be listening to this in August. Um, how is the Adams administration doing on, on these issues where, you know, is there any sort of message uh, you want to deliver here as to, you know, one or two of the things you're really hoping that they hear that you're not quite sure they're they're hearing yet from you? Yeah, uh, I think the main point is, as advocates, we want to continue to work with the administration. We want to continue to work with agencies um, and build on and supercharge the progress in a lot of ways that the agencies and people within government are working on. Pointing to the city bin pilot, for example, and thinking about how do we 
re-envision our curb space in the sense of sanitation and waste management? How do we think about curbside reform as we talked about in the beginning of the conversation? How do we think about managing public space and how potentially the permitting and liability process are burdensome for private partners. And so again, working with in a really collaborative way, um, as well as highlighting how we need structure and framework within government to manage public space because the Department of Transportation is doing great work and we're really appreciative of that work. And as I testified, equally, Open Streets volunteers are burnt out. They've been doing this work for two plus years and mm -hmm. they're still being uh, the lead organizers, the lead managers of public spaces in their communities for what is a city run pro uh, program. All right. Um, there's, a, there's, there's always more to discuss, but uh, we're going to, we're going to leave it there. Uh, really appreciate the time. Jackson Chabot is uh, the director of public space advocacy at open plans, uh, a nonprofit working uh, in New York city to transform the streets of New York city to be truly livable for the residents of the city. Uh, I didn't ask you about tactical urbanism, but we'll we'll have to I'll I'll look that up and and read more about what what that means, and we'll talk about it another time. But Jackson, Absolutely. Thanks, thanks very much for the time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you.